Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In Chester County, just outside the town of Henderson, a lawnmower ruptured a pipeline late last month, causing over 200,000 gallons of crude oil to spill into Horse Creek, narrowly missing, leaking into the state's largest aquifer, less than 100 miles away in Memphis. What do we know about the spill so far? And what are the state pipe and the state of pipelines in Tennessee? And how will a new state law make it easier rather than harder to build fossil fuel infrastructure? That's coming up later in the hour. But first, a longtime Rutherford County juvenile court judge, Donna, Donna Scott Davenport, announced her retirement in January. Her announcement came after the w, WPLN News and ProPublica investigation revealed decades of illegal arrests and detention of more than 1,000 children under Davenport's watch. Starting today, voters in Rutherford County can head to the polls to pick the next juvenile court judge. And to gain some insight on the race and the candidates, we are joined by WPLN criminal justice reporter Paige Flager. Hey, Paige. Hey, Kalia. All right. So set the stage for us. This is one judge's race in a county in one county in Tennessee. But why are so many people paying attention to it? Well, obviously, the investigation that WPLN did with ProPublica, um, our colleague Mariba Knight, um, it was shocking. And I think it, it garnered worldwide attention and there were nationwide calls for reform. And so I think in this moment um, where Judge Donna Scott Davenport announced that she would be retiring, um, all eyes are on Rutherford County to see what the citizens are going to do and who they want to fill this seat. So who are the candidates running for this open judgeship? Yeah, so we have Travis Lampley, who's running as a Republican. Currently, he's the assistant district attorney. Um, he has a lot of experience in juvenile courts across Middle Tennessee. He's also a former lawyer for the Department of Children's Services. And then running against him is Andre Chrisman. He is running as an independent in large part because he says doing the right thing by kids should be nonpartisan. Uh, and he has experience both as a legal aid lawyer and as a local pastor. So what have they both said as far as their platforms? It's interesting. I think in a lot of ways, they they have similar ideas of, of how they'd like to see the juvenile court run, um, though their execution of those ideas are a little bit different. So both of them are really into an idea of, of early intervention. Uh, but Chrisman in particular has some more concrete ideas about ways to keep kids out of the criminal justice system altogether. Um, he has a proposal where he would partner with law enforcement agencies to sort of identify offenses that could be citations instead of arrests hmm. to keep kids out of the system altogether. Okay, so the news about Judge Davenport, as you said, it made national news and it's sort of the cloud hanging above this race. First, we should say that you reached out to Judge Davenport, but she has declined to be interviewed. Can you give us a quick recap of what the investigation found? The investigation into Davenport. Yes. Yeah, it just found that that for decades while she was sitting on the bench in the Rutherford County uh, uh, 
juvenile court that she was illegally that she was overseeing the illegal arrest and detention of children. This was going on for decades. We're talking kids as young as seven years old. Mm. Um, it was really punitive. Uh, our colleague Mariba has listened to, to hours and hours of, of interviews from Davenport talking about how she felt like kids needed to be punished um, and these really young kids. And so a lot of the the findings were really shocking and I think drew a lot of attention to the judgeship, which when we talk about judges, there's not a whole lot of um, sort of oversight and criticism uh, of these positions. And so I think now in this moment where we're having the election, a lot more people are paying attention to to the thoughts and the proposals by these candidates. So how have Chrisman and Lampley addressed the controversy? Yeah, I think that Lampley, based on some comments um, that that they've that he has made, Lampley is sort of trying to run this like a traditional race. He's he's talking about his proposals. He talks a lot about his administrative abilities. He's got all of this firsthand experience. Uh, he wants to kind of close the the months long backlog that currently exists within the court. Um, whereas Chrisman has more of this kind of community centered approach where he really wants to go out and engage with people. He says that, you know, what happened with Davenport happened kind of behind closed doors. It was very insular. And his idea of the position moving forward would be to kind of open it up and, and educate the community about what he does. So both candidates recently appeared on a WGNS radio forum, and they were asked a question about how they would restore confidence in the juvenile court's office. We're going to hear first from Chrisman, the independent, and then Lampley, the Republican. We would go out into the community to, to do an education piece about how the court operates, people to see me and meet me in a non-judicial setting so that hopefully they uh, won't meet me uh, in a judicial setting where I'm about to pronounce judgment. I would like to think that, that my, um, my experience would restore confidence. So I think this county um, needs and desires someone with actual juvenile court experience to lead, lead this moving forward. This is not a time to be learning on the job. So, Paige, help us make sense of their responses. How are campaigns setting themselves up? How, how are they setting, actually setting themselves apart from each other? Yeah, I, I think it's like I was saying, they have some similar proposals. I, I think the way that they're both responding to this controversy is different. I think that, um, you know, Chrisman is running sort of in light of, of what has happened. And, and he starts almost every speech that I listen to by talking about, you know, we've been in the news lately. Rutherford County's been in the news lately. And uh, he truly believes that the things that are wrong with Rutherford County can be fixed by the things that are right with Rutherford County. Whereas Lampley, uh, I think he's really just trying to say, you know, I've got on paper everything you could want out of a, a juvenile court judge. And uh, that is how he plans to rebuild trust is just by, you know, having this direct experience, knowing how to get in on the first day and hit the ground running. I wonder about the voters. How do residents in Rutherford County, how do they feel about this race, especially in light of the revela the revelations about Davenport? Yeah, I think it's really tricky. I think that there is a lot of pain in the community because this was happening for so long and touched the lives of so many people. Um, and so there is a lot of question about 
you know, what do we want the person taking this seat to do? How different do we want them to be from what we saw from Davenport? Um, And I think that those are questions that people will be asking themselves as they go to the polls. Our colleague Maribel Knight reported on Davenport's retirement. She talked to local pastor Vincent Windrow, who said he was skeptical that any new judge would make real change. We cannot accept it as closure. There still must be investigations. There still must be scrutiny. Otherwise, we're just, we're just, we're still the same horse. We're just changing riders. So what kind of outside scrutiny of the system has happened since Davenport announced her retirement? Well, I think you can hear it in in Windrow's quote there where he's saying, you know, putting a new butt in the seat is not going to be enough to to kind of satisfy um, the the questions that people have about what happened and how it happened for so long. So I think in in his mind um, and in a lot of community members' minds, the question is, you know, Judge Donna Scott Davenport did not operate within a bubble. She mm-hmm. there she was working with other people. The criminal justice system is this big, massive machine, and she was simply one part in it. And so I think there is a lot of question about what investigations and accountability there will be for the folks who worked within that system and had knowledge of what was happening. Um, and I think that there's also this question, too, of whether or not the person taking over the job is what what role do they want to play in demanding for some of this accountability and investigation to happen? What will you be keeping an eye on as we get closer to Election Day and beyond? I think it'll be interesting to see if anything comes from those investigations, um, whether there will be more accountability and change for Rutherford County's criminal justice system and the juvenile justice system in particular. When we're talking about kids, um, some of these decisions can impact the rest of their lives. And so I think whoever ends up taking this seat, I'll be interested to see what role they'll play in trying to get accountability for, for what has happened. Paige Flager is WPLN's criminal justice reporter. Paige, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the oil spill in Chester County that released over 200,000 gallons of crude oil close to the state's largest aquifer. Do you have questions about the state of Tennessee's oil pipelines? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kalele Colonna, and this is Nashville. A few weeks ago, a worker for the Department of Transportation was conducting some routine lawn maintenance work when suddenly their mower struck a 1,000-mile pipeline, causing 200,000 gallons of crude oil to spill over into Horse Creek out west near Henderson, Tennessee. WPLN news reporter Caroline Eggers found out about it a week later, and for many people, that was the first they heard of the spill. The incident had raised a lot of questions about how these large pipelines are maintained and regulated, and what kind of communication has to happen with the public. Here to discuss is Sarah Houston, executive director of Protect Our Aquifer to start the conversation. Sarah, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much, Khalil, for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. So I understand that you went out to the site of the spill after you read WPLN's story about it. Can you tell us what you saw? 
Absolutely. Yeah. We hopped in the car and headed out to Henderson. Um, first we went both upstream and downstream of where the spill was to see if there was any oil slicks that we could find. Thankfully we didn't see anything beyond what was around the actual cleanup site. But when we got out to that point, there were large crews out there, multiple tankers where they had been actually pulling up product out of the creeks and out of the soils. And it was, it was a pretty big operation by the time we had gotten there a week after the spill. Would you say that the cleanup has been effective? From what we can tell, yes. Um, I mean, the saving grace in all of this was the response time. I mean, they got there within the day and full operation was running 24 seven that next day. Um, so it looks to be well contained from the information we have seen, but we really don't get to see the full reports and, you know, a lot of this data until at least a month after the incident. So there's still a lot of concern out there about really the extent of this impact. What concerns do you have? Um, concerns include, you know, how deep did it leach into the soil? You know, the soil eventually leads to groundwater table where there are rural, um, landowners that pump their water from there. So, you know, we don't know exactly the extent of the spill on the land and also looking at, you know, air quality impacts. There's, there's a lot of chemicals that get released into the air and, and local folks will be breathing that air for, you know, weeks to come. So, um, those are the kind of data figures and information that we just don't have access to yet. Now, your organization is committed to protecting the Memphis sand aquifer and the waters from Horse Creek eventually flow right into that. As far as we know, the spill didn't affect the aquifer. Why is that? That is correct. And, and that goes back to that response time. Henderson lies right on the edge of the Memphis sand aquifer formation and what we call the recharge zone. That's an area where the sands almost come up to land surface and rainwater can directly infiltrate in. When we pulled up a map from the U.S. Geologic Survey, Henderson was right off of that. So that was that was a really sigh of relief on our part. Um, but really, what if they hadn't have responded quickly, it could have flowed into the nearby river, the South Fork of Deer River, which does flow into the aquifer's recharge zone. But since it was caught early and maintained, it doesn't look to have reached that far. Now, why is that significant for people to know? Well, you know, the, that recharge zone, there's no really additional clay layer natural protection. So that oil could have seeped into that Memphis sand aquifer recharge zone at a much higher rate than if that spill were, were to occur elsewhere. So that would have made cleanup harder and, you know, potentially impacting drinking water supply on a much wider scale. I'd like to bring in my next guest. Scott Banbury is the conservation program coordinator and lobbyist for the Tennessee State Chapter of the Sierra Club. Scott, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So what, what can you tell us about this pipeline that burst in Chester County? What was it doing? Where was it going? So uh, as far as I can tell, the oil in this pipeline is coming from the Permian Basin in Texas, and it's going to refineries um, in the Great Lakes. What's important to understand here is that since 2010, we've developed uh, this technique called fracking that's allowed us to bring up a lot more oil and natural gas reserves than we previously thought were accessible to us. Um, part of that 
uh, problem there is that it has led to a consolidation of pipeline ownership with a goal of getting as much material, oil or gas, to export markets. In 2015, we lifted our oil export ban in the United States that had been in, in place since the 70s. Um, and companies are rushing to get materials to the Gulf of Mexico so that they can export either liquefied natural gas or they can export crude oil. In Tennessee, that's led to we've got a little more than a dozen major interstate pipelines, some of which used to carry natural gas, have now been converted to carrying crude oil. One of those pipes runs right through the recharge area of the Memphis Sand Aquifer. And other pipes have been converted to carry some of the other chemicals that come up when they're fracking for gas. So um, is, is this pretty typical of what we see across the state? You know, like the cutting across Tennessee to get from state to state sending oil. Is that a typical thing? It's, it's a typical thing. And it's very much changed the landscape. All of these pipes have been now pressurized as much as they can to carry more volume. And a lot of times landowners that had these pipes running across their properties never knew that things were being more pressurized, leading perhaps to greater catastrophic accidents. It's important to note here that on July 4th, just days after this accident in Chester County, in Loudoun County, some 24,000 gallons of gasoline were accidentally released from the Colonial Pipeline. Hmm. And one of the things that we're concerned about is who is really you know, kind of minding the chicken coop here. Most of these companies are self-reporting, self-regulating, and we only see the intervention of federal agencies uh, or state agencies when there is a catastrophic accident. Now, as I mentioned earlier, a mowing contractor struck the pipeline and caused the leak. Sarah, if a pipeline can be ruptured by a lawnmower, what does that say about the condition of the pipeline itself? That is a wonderful question. <laughs> you know, this pipeline is old. We finally found records from the public or from the Pipeline Safety Trust that found that this Mid-Valley pipeline was constructed back in 1949. This thing is over 72 years old and regulations do not require operators to maintain that depth of cover over their pipelines. So best practice is to have that thing, you know, pretty deep down. So it's not going to accidentally get bumped by a lawnmower, but this one obviously has started to move in some form or fashion that, you know, has not been maintained or well mapped. So that, that was one weak spot that, you know, unfortunately was discovered because of this major spill. How many other areas of this pipeline look like that? Hmm. We have no idea. Now, Scott, you mentioned that these companies are self-reporting. Who's responsible for the maintenance of the oil pipelines in the state? Well, the companies themselves are. Mm -hmm. And we do have an agency, the Pipeline Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, that requires that pipelines be built to certain specifications when initially constructed. But they only have 88 inspectors nationwide. So they're counting on these companies to do the right thing, make sure their pipelines are properly maintained. Again, we might not see these folks unless there is a problem. In 2015, we looked at a pipeline running through Dixon County, part of the Tennessee natural gas pipeline system owned by Kinder Morgan, and we found egregious 
lack of maintenance along that route. And only after we reported it to the Pipeline Hazardous Material Safety Administration did they come out, verify what we had found, and make Kinder Morgan take steps to clean that up. Well, who holds them accountable? Right now, it's me and Sarah and hmm. Justin, who's going to come up here later, so and, and several other organizations. We've got a lot of partners working on the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, Appalachian Voices, Southern Environmental Law Center, and others that are, are really starting to take more note of this problem because, again, we can't count on the state to look after it. The state doesn't really have resources. And recently, we passed legislation that restricts local communities from having any more say about it. Now, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking with Sarah Houston of Protect Our Aquifer and Scott Banbury with the Tennessee chapter of the Sierra Club about our state's second largest crude oil spill, which happened just a few weeks ago in Chester County. So I want to acknowledge to you that you both work in environmental advocacy and act as watchdogs during events like this. We did want to include some people who've been directly involved with the spill to give us that perspective on the show. But we had a lot of trouble getting people on air. Everyone said we should talk to someone else. The mayor of Chester County referred us to the local emergency management official. That guy referred us to the Tennessee Department of Environmental and Conservation. That agency referred us to the federal EPA and to the company that owns the pipeline, The EPA didn't respond to us, and the pipeline owner referred us to their previous statements. Scott, is this an issue you see a lot? (laughs) Well, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, you just laid out what the problem is here, is everybody's passing the buck. Mm -hmm. And and this could have serious repercussions. Back in, I want to say it was 1992, we had a pipeline uh, rupture and explode, caught on fire in White Bluff, uh, Tennessee, and it burnt like 400 acres, damaged several homes, four people were injured. Um, these things can be very serious. In this case, you know, maybe this accident happened in a place where there wasn't any direct and immediate impacts to people or to ecosystems. But these pipes run underneath many of our towns and cities. And having in place, a system by which we make sure that they're properly maintained and they're safe and that they're sited in appropriate areas, not close to schools, not close to churches, you know, where you're going to have people gathering is important. And again, this last year, uh, our Tennessee General Assembly took away much of our local community's ability to to make sure that these things are safe and that they're put in the right places. You know, I want to get to that in a second, but I'm just wondering if it's this difficult to get an answer for this event, what does that mean for future events? You know, I mean, this is tricky. With this spill that happened on July 4th on the Colonial Pipeline, the company is supposed to have systems in place that detect whether it's leaking or not so that they can respond to it. They evidently didn't respond to it until locals said, hey, we can smell gasoline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I think that people need to be looking after this on a local level. We need to be protecting our drinking water supplies and we need to be, you know, protecting our streams that are lifeblood of Tennessee. Sarah, what, what's your, what, what are your thoughts? How does this, what does this mean for future events? And <laughs> I love the way you, you laid out that, you know, telephone chain. <laughs> you mm. went in. And, and I mean, it really just goes to show that 
you know, there is a lot of shirking of responsibility. And I think that we could expect a very similar type of chain of command on a future incident. You know, it's really about making sure that they don't look like they're the ones responsible and the word did our part and, you know, what did they do? And it's really, you know, a hot game, of hot potato. And that is not the approach we need. We're talking about extremely hazardous infrastructure that is a threat to human health and a threat to our ecosystems that we depend on. This is land, water, and air. So I really don't expect anything to change in the short term, but this is the kind of thing that we're raising the alarm about when it comes to this type of infrastructure and how we can improve the management of it. Now, is this game of responsibility hot potato made possible because, as Scott mentioned, there's no state-set regulatory agency to look over this? Yeah, I think that's definitely a huge part of it. And, you know, like he mentioned, there's that one federal agency that's really in charge of pipeline safety and dealing with the incredible, incredibly large amount of pipeline infrastructure we have, they're understaffed and unable to really do a great job at that. So, you know, I I mean, absolutely. I think that this is one of those things that we're only able to have a reactive response to these types of events. It's not about being proactive at all. Now, Scott, as you mentioned, the state assembly passed a law that prohibits local governments from taking action against the development of fossil fuel infrastructure. How does that new law impact a situation like this oil spill? Well, you know, it doesn't so much have to do with the pipelines that are already in the ground, but new pipelines are being proposed all the time. We've got two new pipelines, a 32-mile, 30-inch diameter pipeline carrying gas to Cumberland City from Dixon uh, County, Tennessee. Another one, 120-some miles from uh, basically from Davidson County over to uh, Roan County, Tennessee. And local communities need the ability to say, hey, you know, we don't want this infrastructure going through places that are sensitive. And we need to make sure that where they're crossing, you know, waterways that we might be getting drinking water out of, that steps are being taken to to protect that drinking water supply and, and keep uh, more people from being harmed when accidents do happen. One of my friends likes to say there's, you know, pipelines that that there's just two kinds of pipelines. There's ones that leak and ones that will leak. And, you know, there's no way around that. We need to be making wise decisions about where this infrastructure is sited. But it's in, in light of speaking of that, you know, there's a high demand of energy in our society and we need infrastructure to meet our energy needs. So what would you like to see happen? Well, I just want to back up here. A lot of this is really not about meeting our needs anymore. It's about meeting the needs of the world. So we're now exporting methane gas to Europe to make up for uh, what they're not getting from Russia anymore. We're exporting crude oil to other countries to be refined for their needs. The laws around this are based on local need and necessity. And you know, there's a big difference between a company wanting to make money by exporting these materials, um, gas or oil, and us needing it for our local consumption. And I'm going to say that we've taken huge steps in the last 10 years towards being able to meet our energy needs through renewable energy, through solar and wind. And now battery storage is a you know serious possibility to meet all our needs. Recently, the 
Nashville Electric Service, the Metro Council and Mayor Cooper all weighed in and said, we don't need to build a new gas pipeline to Cumberland City to generate electricity from gas. We need to be investing in renewable energy that is safer, cleaner. When solar spills, it doesn't contaminate the soil. We need to be making those investments now. Now, Chester County Mayor did tell us that the landowners he talked to were happy with the response from the energy company. So, Sarah, if the community that's affected isn't bothered by it, is this a success story? Um, I don't know if I would say success story <laughs> because, you know, it is still, you know, hazardous crude oil seeping into land, water and air. I mean, it's hard to actually understand the impacts of the air that these people breathed over the past few weeks and what that means for their long-term health. Like those are immeasurable impacts, but you know, it is a success in the sense that it was responded to quickly. It was contained quickly and it was cleaned up or is being cleaned up quickly. But one point that Scott brought up earlier about, you know, this happening in a very low density rural area compared to higher density, you know, this same spill 200,000 gallons were to happen you know, in the middle of Memphis, middle of Nashville, that would have much different impacts to the community, to people's health, to our water supply that luckily we didn't experience because of where the spill occurred. But when we're talking about future infrastructure build outs, that local say and like looking at density of where people live, that is a huge piece of the conversation when you're citing this infrastructure and this new law really takes the approach of cutting that that input completely out of the conversation. Sarah Houston, stay with us through the break. Scott Bamberry is with the Tennessee chapter of the Sierra Club. Scott, thanks so much for being with us today. When we come back, we will talk about how communities have fought back against pipelines in Tennessee and a new state law that makes that harder. What are your thoughts about the new pipeline law? Tweet us. And this is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. This hour, we're talking about Tennessee's second largest crude oil spill, which happened just a couple weeks ago in Chester County. The 200,000 gallon spill has been contained and the county mayor seems pleased with the cleanup efforts. This kind of incident is exactly what one community in Memphis was worried about a few years ago when a company announced plans to build a pipeline there. Residents mobilized and successfully blocked those plans. My next guest helped spearhead in that fight. Justin Pearson is with Memphis Community Against Pollution. Justin, welcome to This is Nashville. Hey, Khalil. Uh, It's wonderful to be on with you. Appreciate the opportunity. Great to have you with us, my friend. So how did you get involved in environmental justice? Yeah, um, the environmental justice fight sort of found me post the start of the pandemic. I was uh, back home in Memphis, learned about the Valero Energy Corporation and Plains All-Americans by Haley Connection Pipeline in October of 2020. Uh, And thankful to the residents of Boxtown and Westwood, West Junction, Walker Homes, who were already resisting for over a year uh, when uh, I'd learned about it and our co-founders. And we were fortunate to catalyze this movement to stop the pipeline. So 
Tell me, what was going on through your mind as you learned more about the link between the environment and community health? Yeah, I think the pipeline fight always uh, was going to reveal environmental racism and environmental injustice. It didn't create it. Uh, these corporations, oil conglomerates, they utilize the same practices and playbooks to disrupt, destroy, uh, and perpetuate ecological devastation. Um, we were uh, dealing with the wake of the summer of Black Death, where we'd lost uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery to lynching. And people were talking about what's happening to black communities by systems. Um, we're dealing with the pandemic, and that's disproportionately impacting people's health, especially uh, poor communities, white, black uh, communities of color. And so when this pipeline came out and we started to learn that the cancer risk in our neighborhood was four times the national average, we started to see some linkages between the oil refineries and the steel mills, the pipelines uh, that are actually perpetuating pollution and the people in our lives who are dying. Uh, my grandmothers, God rest both their souls, died of cancer living in Southwest Memphis, this community where they were building the pipeline. And so connecting that with the universal issue of our water being threatened, our air becoming more toxic, uh, uh, helped us to push and mobilize our community to stop and to beat this pipeline. So you helped mobilize the community against the Bahalia pipeline. How, tell me, how were you able to get the people on board and working together? Yeah, I think the first thing to realize is uh, the power, that power exists in all people and in all communities. Uh, we're often told uh, that there are places that are powerless or people that are voiceless, but that is not true. Uh, folks have a voice. A lot of people have been screaming, like the elders in Boxtown. They're just not being listened to. And all of us have power, particularly in community, to transform the status quo. Uh, it's important to realize when I joined this fight, and I'm fortunate to play a small role here, um, there were people already resisting. It was just linking up together, right? Uh, an intergenerational movement, a multiracial movement uh, to, to defeat the pipeline. And so we met for hours and hours on Zoom. We held rallies together. Uh, we sought to inform, educate, and activate the community to learn as much as we could. And we're really fortunate that we were able to build a multiracial coalition of people who care about what the author Heather McGee calls the solidarity dividend. And so you had people who didn't seem like they would be bothered, Khalil, about a pipeline going through a freedman's community or a predominantly black community or a low wealth community from richer parts of town, from across the country and really the globe, who started to care about what's happening. Because if you don't pay attention to what's happening to the people most excluded, the effects are going to have significant uh, uh, impacts on the broader community. And that uh, intersection and that interconnection is what helped us to sustain our movement and helps us to continue to fight today. Now, Sarah Houston with Protect Our Aquifer is still with us. Sarah, you fought yeah. against the Bahalia Pipeline as well. What what threats did the pipeline pose to the environment? Yeah, absolutely, Khalil. Thank you for the question. Um, there were, you know, two broad aquifer threats beyond all the horrible things that Justin just described. One was that the proposed route was supposed to go directly through one of our utilities municipal well fields. So Memphis Light, Gas and Water owns these areas. They're called well fields. That's where we poke a bunch of holes in the ground. And that's where we are pumping up our drinking water supply. And this specifically was Davis Wellfield in Southwest Memphis, providing drinking water to all the neighborhoods Justin just described and the industries on President's Island. So this pipeline was routed to go directly through that well field, straddling two wells. 
That is not best management practice to have hazardous, high risk infrastructure go through drinking water supply. That's just not a best practice. That was a big issue on the aquifer, number one. Number two was that as the pipeline continued its route through South Memphis across northern Mississippi, it would reach the Memphis Sand Aquifer's recharge zone. That's that area I described earlier in the segment where the sands come to the surface and rainwater and any contaminant can directly reach the aquifer quickly. So that pipeline would have been built over another very vulnerable area of the aquifer. So you all used a multi-pronged approach to fight this pipeline. Tell us, what were those prongs? Well, Justin, MCAP, and, you know, all of the community members of Southwest Memphis, they, we were following their lead <laughs> a lot of the way, um, you know, people power and, and making noise at the county and the city level. That was one major prong. Um, another prong was that permitting process where the pipeline company had to get multiple permits about crossing waterways, but none of them took into account groundwater. None of them took into account our aquifer as a drinking water supply. And so we were very vocal with Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation, TDEC, and with Army Corps of Engineers under Nationwide Permit 12, that these permits are not looking at the, the full picture of water resource impacts. Um, and so that was another prong was actually kind of the the litigation and the actual attempt for them to not use those permits. Um, and then a third one Justin can speak about was the eminent domain and the attempt for the um, pipeline company to take land from black homeowners that did not want to sell rights. Um, and that was, you know, another one. And, you know, it really became a national issue for all these various reasons. There's so much intersectionality with all of this. And, you know, we had, we built support within county commission and city council because of all these various factors. So multi-prong <laughs> approach is exactly the right, the right description of it. it. We were coming at them from all sides, grassroots, all the way to federal government. Justin, how did you all really approach the issue of eminent domain? Yeah, you can't talk about this movement or this victory without talking about Mr. Clyde Robinson and Mrs. Scotty Fitzgerald. Uh, they were two landowners who refused to give up their land to the pipeline company, despite the fact that this company had so many resources, had so much money. Uh, they said, we're not going to do it. And we were able to build our movement and rally around this mother and father, uh, I would say, of the of the fight. Uh, we are really fortunate to have legal power people power. Uh, and with the Southern Environmental Law Center and Birch Porter and Johnson, we challenged whether or not this company really had the right of eminent domain, because there are some really important aspects of that law that say this has to be for a public purpose. It has to serve a public good in order for you to be able to use the power to actually take someone's land. Eminent domain isn't new to, to black folks in particular who have had their land taken for centuries using state power, using corporate power in order to do so. And so when we saw Mr. Clyde Robinson, we met Mrs. Scotty Fitzgerald. We really did learn their stories, learned how little the pipeline was trying to give them, even in money. And they said, no matter what number they wanted to give, we weren't selling. And then our attorneys, uh, Scott Crosby, uh, George Nolan, uh, we all sort of joined suit in partnership with those two landowners to say, look, the threats 
uh, to the water, to the aquifer, uh, but also the taking of the land is wrong. And a private corporation does not have the power that government has to take someone's land because this isn't for public use. It was for them to make billions of dollars, uh, for them to profit off of the pollution and the harm of our communities, which has been done overwhelmingly uh, throughout the course of American history. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking with environmental activists Sarah Houston and Justin Pearson about their work fighting fossil fuel infrastructure in our state. So in response to your efforts in Memphis, some Republican lawmakers put forward a bill this spring that would basically make it harder to do what you all did. Here's Republican Senator Ken Yeager, who was one of the sponsors. You know, we've seen a trend in recent years, Mr. Chairman, that... uh, uh, from some groups that um, that have taken aim at uh, fossil fuels in general, and sometimes that uh, that campaign against fossil fuels has has manifested itself in some local governments getting involved in what should otherwise be a state statewide uh, uh, scope. Uh, we've seen that now happen in Tennessee where we've actually had one of our uh, political subdivisions try to use the power of ordinance to and uh, to stop and, and did stop a pipeline. Um, and this bill will address that general issue. We should say that we invited Senator Yeager to come on to This Is Nashville or to give a statement, but he declined. Sarah, can you just break it down for our listeners? What does this new law do? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, one point I do want to make about uh, Senator Yeager's statement is that the pipeline was not stopped with the power of ordinance. The pipeline was stopped with people power and common sense. So the ordinances that we eventually passed, those happened after the pipeline announced it was canceled in July of 2021. And um, MCAP and Peter Aquifer led the charge on passing additional layers of protection at the county and the city level. And none of them were outright bans of crude oil infrastructure, but what they did was, one was actually create what's called a wellhead protection overlay district. Again, this is a best practice that is not only in Memphis, but around the country where you have a zoning law that says certain types of hazardous infrastructure like crude oil pipelines should not be built in close proximity of our well fields. If you need to do that, you have to pull a special permit. And that was to approach that gap in the permit regulatory laws that we saw, nothing's covering our groundwater. And so what this bill attempted to do was was to eliminate all of that local say and siting of this infrastructure. And this bill is very broad. It's not just about pipelines, it's about energy infrastructure like storage tanks, um, any other related equipment, gas lines, industrial infrastructure, you know, very broad, broad definitions. That's not just pipelines. And what it does is really limit the ability for a local government to pass any additional types of permits or regulations about where and how this infrastructure is sited and constructed. So now we were, oh, I'll pause there. So, I mean, how does this affect future efforts for environmental protection? It's it's a lot of risk. It's very risky. I will say that, you know, our coalition was successful in getting amendments passed. So that wellhead protection overlay law 
that now is not allowed to be preempted. That is a law that can stand. Um, there were some other laws about um, rights of way on streets and roads. Those ordinances that we were able to pass at the Memphis level stand with the amendments that were accepted. But what does it mean for the future? There's a lot of unknown. There's a, there's a clause in there that says reasonable powers of political subdivision you know, are not allowed. And it's like, what, what do you consider reasonable? There's so much loose language in there that is up for interpretation that private companies could full and well take advantage of. And it's yet to be seen how this law will be used. And you know, we're not going to stand down if we think that there is an issue worth fighting for and there is a serious common sense lacking in how this infrastructure is getting built. So short answer to your question, it's very unclear how this law is going to be try to be used by private companies, but the public say we're going to we're going to do what we can to ensure the public voice is still heard. I want to focus on something the other sponsor of the bill said when explaining why he thought it was a good idea. His Republican state representative, Ken Vaughn. It's necessary to ensure consumer choice will not be limited. And here's the critical portion that markets rather than governments are driving future energy innovation and that all of Tennessee's citizens have access to affordable and reliable energy. I need to note that Representative Vaughn also declined to come on to the show. So this piece of affordable, reliable energy makes me wonder, Justin, even if you don't like oil and gas, we do need pipelines to transfer oil and gas to meet our energy needs demands of the state, don't we? No, we need to be putting as much energy and effort into affordable, clean, renewable resources as humanly possible. Anyone who is operating on this planet who thinks that the existential crisis of climate change will not impact them or extreme weather incidences will not impact them are living on a different plane. The reality is we can invest in different forms of energy that will help to supply our needs. The status quo currently says we do need to have pipelines for oil and gas and these things for planes to fly. We're not saying that is not true. What we are saying is that we have a responsibility and an opportunity to make sure local government, local people who know their uh, communities the best have a say. And what Representative Kevin Vaughn and Senator Yeager did was to say out-of-state corporations have more say than the people who live in the state of Tennessee. They're saying that in a state where we don't even have crude oil, a foreign company like Enbridge or a Texas company like Plains All-American deserves more say than the people who actually live here. Stripping local government of their power is what this law intended to do. We were fortunate, as Sarah mentioned, to pass some uh, uh, amendments that allowed us the opportunity to have uh, some of the laws that we work to pass here in Tennessee uh, remain. But this type of legislation is going to hurt poor people the most, is going to hurt environmental justice communities. And if we continue to allow folks to allow corporations to write laws like the Tennessee Chamber of Commerce and the Tennessee Gas Station Association to continue to push laws, again, coming from industry, not from people in communities, we're going to see the perpetuation of injustice. But just as much as they want to fight for injustice, there are going to be people like us who are going to continue to fight for justice. So now that this state law has passed, it's going to be harder in the future to do what you did in Memphis. Justin, how can communities still mobilize and fight these efforts to build new pipelines if they disagree with them? 
Yeah, all hope is not lost, right? Uh, we have seen unjust laws, and we've seen people with a consciousness above unjust laws change the course of history. This is what they wanted, right? They wanted to pass the law to try and quell the possibility of communities rising up against these corporations. We have to resist. We have to resist, and I'm really uh, excited, and Scott mentioned these things earlier, of seeing mayors and the Nashville Electric Service Board and people saying, you know what, we don't want any more pipelines, gas pipelines, do renewable energy. We have organizations like CleanUp TVA at cleanuptva.org who are working to say we don't need more gas pipelines. We need to determine what our energy future is going to be. And so for communities that are currently facing uh, the, the reality right, of these corporations, today trying to build pipelines in the neighborhood, uh, the reality of these corporations trying to write laws to write us out of power. Uh, we can still resist. We can continue to put pressure on locally elected officials. And at some point, we're going to have to take this law to court. Um, and that resistance from Republicans and Democrats, as we saw here uh, in Memphis, who all rally together to fight uh, is going to be the type of coalition that is going to prove that this very ambiguous, wrong-headed uh, corporate law that was passed uh, is antithetical to the values, the principles of our democracy. And people power, mm -hmm. right, uh, mm -hmm. mixed with some divine power is what's going to help us to win. 30 seconds. Sarah, what are you keeping an eye out for in terms of statewide advocacy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's really this kind of like ear to the ground type of watch for these threats. And so it's, it's what's to come, but it's also about what are we doing proactively to enhance these types of environmental protections that are really good for community and for business. And one point I just want to make, this law that was passed explicitly excludes laws over solar, wind, and other renewables. So they're like, whatever laws you want to make harder to put solar in, go for it. If you're trying to make it harder for fossil fuels, not allowed. So this energy independence law or this energy independence, you know, conversation, I think is missing a key part about diversifying where energy is coming from and renewables has to be a part of that conversation. I want to thank my guests, Sarah Houston of Protect Our Aquifer and Justin Pearson from Memphis Community Against Pollution. Thanks, you both. And thank you to everyone who tuned in this hour. Monday, when someone you know is having a mental health crisis, who should you call? Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Emily Siner, Steve Farouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to Doreen Schernecki, our intern. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Caroline Eggers, Kenneth Clarkson, George Nolan, Scott Brooks, Johnny Ferris, Kim Skofinski, and Mariba Knight. Conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Tell us what you want from our show by filling out our survey online. It's real quick. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>